places we'll go. Good morning, guys. How are y'all doing? Um, my name's Graham Cowgill, if we haven't met, and I'm student ministries pastor here. And good to meet you all. I just met you all. That was awesome. Uh, Caleb Anderson, our lead pastor, isn't here. He's on a study break. And for me, I, I love the idea of a study break, that our lead pastor is, um, it's just very refreshing to know that our leader goes away for this time and he prays about the direction and the vision of our church and he spends some time rejuvenating himself, rejuvenating his family. And we've got a big year coming up, don't we? I mean, we're moving to a new building. We've got the step-in campaign going on. Us as a church raising finances for the new building. So um, it's very reassuring to know that our leader doesn't shoulder all of that that he goes away, he hears from God for the direction for our church. So that's where he is, plus he listens to these podcasts, so I want to speak well of him while he's away. That's, that's mainly why I'm doing that. Um, well, it's everybody's favorite time of the year. It's U.S. Open. Don't we just love U.S. Open? Yeah, my family's in town. Um, right now, my brother, his wife, their kid, uh, my mom, my stepdad, and they're all staying with us, and uh, yeah, which is awesome. One of them's staying in the freezer, and so... <laughs> Uh, last night, in U.S. Open fashion, uh, we had four random people come in our house, and uh, one of them hopped into bed with my mom. True story. And uh, so I was like, hey, U.S. Open, mom, welcome to California. You're, way to be a fisher of men, you know, way to, way to go for it. Um, but it's been craziness, adjusting with it, but I'm excited to be here with you guys. Uh, we're in this series called, Oh, the Places You'll Go. And it's based on a book slash poem by Dr. Seuss. And if you've never read the poem, got to go read the poem. It really is. It's an ingenious poem. I just read it for the first time in its entirety this past week. Um, but the poem focuses on, and we focus on, the idea that, oh, the places you'll go is more about the journey to than the arrival at. Right? That life is this incredible journey. It's not just a cool destination. And oh, the places you'll go talks about the, the life that you're going to live, the things that you're going to experience, the things you're going to be a part of in your life. And I wonder how differently we would read that book in different stages of our life. You know? The places we'll go, the things we're going to be a part of. What does that look like, you know, when you're middle school and high school, when you're college 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s, 60s and 70s, 80s and 90s. And the, old, or the young people look at the old people and they say, you know, you're being closed-minded. And the old people look at the young people and say, you're being naive. And no matter who's right, the point is, is that our perspective changes as we go through life on the places that we'll go the things that we'll be a part of. Our perspective changes because as we get older, we feel like we have a better handle on reality and we can more realistically predict the places that we're gonna go, right? We are constantly shaping reality. Everywhere we go, reality is shaped very simply by us going through life and we continually and subconsciously monitor things that are happening in life and then very quickly, subconsciously, we make these quick but pretty concrete judgments about life, and that's what shapes our reality. That's what creates what we believe is possible, right? And that's why realities can look different in different points in your life, reality, 
That's why reality can be different from one person to another because we have different experiences, different filters, different judgments, and that's what we've said is possible. You talk to one person who, you know, I don't know, this girl, let's say the first time she ever sat on a park bench, it breaks and she eats it on the ground. Her reality is that park benches are not safe. Somebody else has sat on a thousand of those things, and their reality is, no, you can trust those things. They never break. The point is, is that realities we create, they affect the way that we see things, but even more, the realities that we create, they affect what we look for in life. This is kind of a goofy example, but bear with me. Let's say in the morning, my neighbor knocks on my door and says, Graham, dog got out last night. Need you to help me look for him. And I say, all right. Steve. I don't know his name, so I guess Steve. Now we're out on the street, and we're looking for his dog, okay? And as we're looking for the dog, as I'm walking down the street, I'm not looking up into the sky for this guy's dog, because I know dogs can't fly. <laughs> Saw a documentary on it once. I'm not looking on rooftops, right, because I know dogs can't climb the sides of houses. I'm not looking behind the wheel of oncoming cars, because I know dogs can't drive. I get it. This is a really dumb example. But the point is, is we do this all the time, in life, very quickly, we set these filters in our life to determine the most probable outcome. And that's our reality. A more realistic example would be if somebody came up and said, hey, Graham, you got a vacation coming up. You looked at taking maybe a family vacation to Paris? I would say, heck no. You know, I haven't been on Travelocity looking at trips to Paris because I have realities that have shaped what's possible in my life. I've got time restraints and money, and Kristen is pregnant with twins, right? And whether it's valid or not, the point is, is that we're constantly setting filters to determine the most probable outcome, and we are narrowing our scope of what's possible. We do it all the time. The story that we're looking at today is a story of a young man in the Bible, his name's Gideon, and Gideon has a very distinct, very concrete reality that he's created for himself. You're going to resonate so much with this guy. The cool thing about Gideon is he used, he's used by God in this crazy journey, and his entire life he is battling with this constant reality of fear and insecurity. So a little bit, little bit of context here. Israel, as a nation, the Israelites, the people who have been delivered from Egypt, Parting of the Red Sea, if you ever heard that story, the people that walked through, that's the Israelites. So Israel, they are now in the promised land, and the Israelites are being plundered and ransacked by surrounding nations. The most of all, Midian. Okay, the Midianites are kind of the bullies of the area, and they're picking on the Israelites, and literally everything that the Israelites do that has any worth is plundered and stolen by the Midianites. So they raise crops, as soon as the crops are ready to be harvested, the Midianites flock in, steal it, and bail. They raise livestock, same thing. They flock in, steal it, and bail. And so the Israelites are living in this constant fear. They're a terrified people. They're poor. They're starving. And in their fear and in their confusion, the Israelites, who have just been delivered from Egypt in this crazy miracle of passing through the Red Sea, in their fear, they turn away from God and they start to worship these false idols, worship these statues because they're just, they're crazy and they're fearful. And in the middle of these fearful Israelites, the story zeroes in on this one young man, his name is Gideon. And Gideon, just to paint a picture, Gideon is like, 
like the, an indoor kid, okay? <laughs> Probably pretty pale, plays a lot of World of Warcraft, right? Skips leg day, like that's Gideon. He's just asthmatic, that's Gideon, okay? He's pretty, pretty feeble guy. And it's actually, it says that Gideon is so terrified of the Midianites and of life in general, that when we find him in the story, he's threshing wheat, and when, thresh, when you thresh wheat, uh, you separate the wheat from the chaff, the chaff is like the outer casing of the wheat, and you do it outside in this basket, and you toss it up, and the wind blows the chaff away, and you're left with the wheat, but you've got to do it outside in the wind to, to blow away. Well, Gideon is so afraid of the Midianites that they'll steal his wheat that he is trying to thresh wheat in a wine press hiding inside in his house. He's just terrified, scared of life. Okay, so now we stumble upon Gideon here. Let's pick it up. If you have your Bibles, um, turn to Judges 6. We're going to start in verse 11. We'll have it up here also. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak tree at Ophrah that belonged to Joash, one of the Abyssalite people. When it says the angel of the Lord here in this context, it actually is saying an actual manifestation of God himself. That, that essentially Jesus is showing up to Gideon in some sort of physical representation, and he is communicating with Gideon. I don't know if it's audible words, I don't know if it's to his mind, what, but there is a physical manifestation of God himself appearing and communicating to Gideon, okay? So Gideon, Joash's son, was separating some wheat from the chaff in a wine press to keep the wheat from the Midianites. What a guy. The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior, which I'm sure Gideon was like, Right, a little, <laughs> little asthma inhale. Because <laughs> he's like, look, I got mirrors in my house, God. All right, I... And Gideon, he replies in infinite humility and reverence. He says, if the Lord is with us, why are we having so much trouble? We're the miracles our ancestors told us he did when the Lord brought him out of Egypt. But now he's left us and has handed us over to the Midianites. Well, God completely ignores Gideon because he's being stupid and said, Gideon, go with your strength and save Israel from the Midianites. I am the one who is sending you. But Gideon answered again in classic Gideon form, Lord, how can I save Israel? My family group is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least important member of my family. The Lord answered him, I will be with you. It will seem as if the Midianites you are fighting are only one man. So Gideon has created this reality for himself, a reality that discounts him from doing things, right? He says, God, I know the way that this works, okay? Battles are won by big men with big swords, and that's not who I am. He actually argues with God and says, I am literally the weakest of the weak, you, you, you've got something wrong, you can't use me. Now, chances are that Gideon doesn't arrive at this conclusion that he's the weakest of the weak by himself. You never do. If you're insecure, you didn't get there by yourself. I'm sure his entire life, people have been speaking this into him. You know the nation that we live in. You know how weak Israel is, right? You know that you have like the most pathetic family in our nation. You know that, right? 
You know that you are the most feeble and weak of your family? And the more and more this is spoken over him, the more and more it becomes Gideon's reality. And he figures, my best chance is just to stay out of the way. All I have to offer, my best chance is just to hide. I don't know if anybody, anybody here can resonate with that, having something spoken over you your entire life, um, feeling an insecurity, whether it's by others, by family, whatever, and you have discounted yourself from ever doing something incredible because of what's been spoken over you. You ever heard, you're too young, you're too old, you're not smart enough, you're not tall enough, you're not rich enough, you're not a good enough speaker. All of this is spoken into your life continually by media, by other people, and slowly but surely, it becomes what you believe to be true about yourself, and it shapes the way that you live. Other people's opinions, they create your perceptions, and they frame a reality for all of us that constricts and reduces what we believe is possible in our life. So what happened to Gideon, right? He'd been lied to his entire life. He'd been lied to by other people, by himself, by the enemy. Another name for Satan, one of his names is the author of lies. John 10.10 10 says, A thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I come to give life, life in all of its fullness. He attacks Gideon's identity to make him feel useless and worthless, and it is so ingrained in who Gideon is that God himself shows up and declares to Gideon who he is, and he doesn't believe him. God himself says, you are a mighty warrior, and he says, you've got the wrong guy. So at this point in the story, Gideon is called by God, called a mighty warrior, but now God's got to find a way to get Gideon to lead this army. He's got to get some street cred, right? So here's the plan. He says, Gideon, you know all these false idols that you guys have been worshiping? I want you to go to Baal, the statue of Baal, and I want you to pull it down. I want you to destroy it. That's going to ruffle some feathers. And Gideon is terrified beyond belief and says, all right, God, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it at night because I'm scared of repercussions. And God says, okay, fine, that's fine, do it at night. So Gideon pulls it down at night. Sure enough, the next morning, everybody wakes up and they are enraged and everybody wants to kill Gideon. And actually, Gideon's dad steps in and goes, hold on a second, Baal, isn't this supposed to be God? And everyone's like, yeah. They're like, well, then let him fight for himself. Let Baal defend himself. And everyone's like, oh, that's a good idea. And then nothing happens to Gideon. And Gideon's dad's like, this is dumb. And everyone's like, you're right, this is dumb. What are we doing here? And so in an instant... Because he stepped in, because he did this, he is thrust into this leadership position over the army of Israel. Gideon is. Crazy, huh? So here's the showdown. It's starting to manifest. It's starting to come to fruition, this mighty warrior piece. And Gideon takes the army of Israel, numbered about 32,000, and he's going to go fight the bullies, fight the Midianites. Finally, some vindication now, the Midianite army is about 135,000. So they're outnumbered four to one. And God is speaking to Gideon. This is one of the funniest moments in scripture, I think. He speaks to Gideon and he says, all right, Gideon, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your army and I want you to tell them, if any of you guys are afraid, you can go home. 
And Gideon's thinking to himself, this is the moment that I'm empowered as a leader, right? I'm going to say to my people, hey, if you're afraid, you can go home. And they're all going to go, go home? No way. We believe in you, Gideon. We're with you, buddy. Let's go do this thing. So he's a little pumped. He's ready for this moment to step into Mighty Warrior. Day comes. He draws a line in the sand. And he's like, all right, men, men, we all know why we're here. I'll tell you what, if any of you guys are afraid, cross this line, you can go home. And as soon as he said it, 22,000 people <laughs> crossed the line. And the color drains from his already pale face. And he's like, uh-oh. It goes even further. God talks to him and says, take these 10,000 men. I want you to take them down to this river and have them drink from the river. And those that that lap it up with their hands and drink like this, I want you to keep those people. The people that bend down and drink from the river, send them home. So he does it. He's like, all right, I've trusted you this far. I'm going to keep going. And the number of soldiers that drink like this is 300. 300. And so now we have Gideon, this feeble. He's not been doing P90X. It's not like he's buff all of a sudden. We're still talking about Gideon, right? Gideon leading this army of 300 against an army of 135,000. Now, before God speaks to Gideon and narrows down his army, he says to him one of the most profound things in Scripture. If you have your Bible today, you got to highlight this. Underline this. If you don't, write this down. Go home. Read this statement. I think it's one of the coolest statements in Scripture. This is what God speaks to Gideon. Judges 7, verse 2 Then the Lord said to Gideon, check this out, you have too many men to defeat the Midianites. You have too many men to defeat the Midianites. I don't want the Israelites to brag that they saved themselves. Sometimes God says, I'm going to stack the odds so much against you that when you prevail, people will have to notice me. You got too many men to defeat the Midianites, right? I want to reduce you so that there is no doubt in people's mind who's doing the miracle here. I want to make sure that people see that this is God's power. How do I direct attention to God's power? I was thinking about this. If I was in charge of selling a baseball bat, okay? I'm the marketing director for this baseball bat. It's a brand new baseball bat. It's the most incredible baseball bat that's ever been created. It is scientifically proven to hit a ball further than any other baseball bat, and I'm going to sell this thing. And I set up an infomercial to sell this bat. I'm not going to have, you know, Yasiel Puig hit home runs with this bat because that guy's forearms are the size of my thighs, right? That guy's huge. A guy could hit a home run with a curtain rod. That's not showing anything. If I'm going to wow people with this bat, if I'm going to sell this bat, I'm going to have, you know, one of the Jonas brothers <laughs> step up to the plate and just stroke 400 footers. And people are like, oh my gosh, it's got to be the bat. This thing's got to be the bat. God wants to do the most incredible things throughout human history with the most unsuspecting people and draw attention to his glory, his love, and his power. Gideon wanted more than anything just to be a mighty warrior, right? He wanted more than anything to deliver his people from the Midianites. He just didn't see how it was possible. 
I'll bet every single person here, every single one of you, myself, of course, we have burdens that God has placed on our heart. We have passions. We have desires that God has created in us. But we have discounted ourselves from ever doing anything about it because we're not fill-in-the-blank enough, right? God is not working despite your weakness. God is working because of our weakness, because in our weakness we rely on his strength, and our reality becomes what God says is possible. Look at 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. My grace is enough for you. When you are weak, my power is made perfect in you. So I am very happy to brag about my weaknesses. Then Christ's power can live in me. For this reason, I am happy when I have weaknesses, insults, hard times, sufferings, and all kinds of troubles for Christ, because when I am weak, then I am truly strong. We want to sweep our weaknesses. We want to hide our weaknesses because we want God to use this man or woman of strength. And the exact opposite is true. When we sweep our fears, when we sweep our weaknesses, when we sweep our sins, when we do that, we have too many men to defeat the Midianites. God can't use you. You're you're too perfect. Instead, when we step into the weakness, when God meets us in that place, he wants to declare an incredible greatness in the face of your weakness. He wants to use you in the face of what everybody has always told you you couldn't be used because of. He sees this young man, Gideon, and he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Have we predetermined the places that we'll go? Have we predetermined the things that we'll be a part of? Is our reality based on what's humanly possible? Maybe we need to shift our reality to understand that the God of the universe is working on our behalf. We have to reevaluate what's possible. Middle schoolers, high schoolers in here, be alert. Be alert. Seek after the passions and desires that God has given you. You are not too young. People are going to say that you can't. But with God, all things are possible. College, young adult, fight against the jadedness of the real world. God has an incredible journey for you. Be courageous enough to step into what he's called you to. 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Fight against the trap of survival. Anybody feel like they're just existing? Like they're just surviving? God has a journey for you. God has a bold next step planned for you. If you'd be courageous enough to ask him what that is and to step into it. 70s, 80s, 90s. Fight against the lie that your journey is done. Until the day that we leave this earth, God has a journey for us. Don't discount yourself because of age and say, I can't be used by God. He has an incredible journey for you. God has not called us 
friends, into a journey of survival. He's called us into a life of victory. And a life of victory is possible when we chase after what God has given to us, the passions and desires. We chase after that with a humble dependence on his power, not a reliance on ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for speaking this morning. Would you begin to excite in us the passions and desires that you've given us? Would we start to dream again, to recognize what's possible again with you, not just with us? Can we shift our reality to recognize that the star-breathing God, that you, the one who created the universe, is working on our behalf? We have tried to hide from our weaknesses, to portray ourselves as strong, and you want us just to come fully real and say it's God that is doing the miracle. We trust the journey you're leading us on, we trust the next step that you're giving us, and we as a people, as a church, as a congregation, courageously take the next step towards what you're calling us to. We trust you. In your name, amen.